Hello and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp and on the other line, Ben Golver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. You know, I'm over here podcasting in handcuffs because I, I thought we were doing an emergency podcast here on Monday night to talk about the Raptors' unbelievable meltdown in game three and four. Uh, they've been swept out of the playoffs. But you're trying to tell me here that there's other NBA business that we're going to talk about, and I can't just rant and rave for 45 minutes by myself about another uh, you know, predictable and yet increasingly impressive choke job by Toronto? No, <laughs> I'm not going to let you do that. Look, it's the playoffs, man. We have new listeners. You can't be out here alienating people with your DeRozan vendetta and your bizarre Chris Middleton obsession. I'm not going to let you do that. I'm going to make you wait like 25 minutes while we talk about Sixers Celtics. I will do my best. I'm not going to make any promises. I'm bubbling over here with uh, with Raptors takes and you know dynamite for what they might do in the future. But uh, you're right. I mean, Celtics, Sixers. You know, if if you're not into car crashes, like if you're into actual basketball, it's a more interesting series. And Philadelphia, you know, prolonged their agony here by taking Game Four and forcing a Game Five. So that's probably a pretty good place to start. Yeah, I mean, I'm still recovering from the confetti game over the weekend, but you're right. The Sixers won tonight. Uh, We're recording this on Monday night. Joel Embiid wore a shirt that said, history will be retweeted. Ben Simmons had a diamond-encrusted kangaroo around his neck at the post-game press conference. Uh, TJ McConnell was the best player on the floor. So it was a weird night in Philadelphia. I'm not sure how much we should read into it, but what are your takeaways from just the general thrust of this series at this point? What are my takeaways from a bling kangaroo? Is that what you're, <laughs> exactly. you're trying to throw Let's to me? Let's start there. I think that's, that's probably the best move Simmons has made all series, so that's a win for him. It was awesome. Uh, he's been rocking that for a while. If you followed him on Instagram on, in his stories, Andrew, I think you would have already known that. You know, I do, of course. Um I was glad they saved a little face because game three was one of the most frustrating losses I think any team has endured uh, in this postseason. Maybe the most, well, actually, no, I take it back. Sorry. The Toronto stuff's coming out. Game one, (laughs) Toronto (laughs) was the worst. It could always be worse, Philly. Game three, Toronto was second worst. But I think Philly game three was actually third worst because the number of just completely insane turnovers and look we've said all season long look Philly's a high turnover team you know Simmons you know it's you know you you take a a lot of good with the bad with him Uh, Embiid's always been a high turnover player not just this season but you know last season as well that's going to happen but what's not going to happen is just throwing the ball around the the court for pick sixes going the other direction in the closing minutes of games just the sloppiness was completely out of control and uh, you know, from from that standpoint, you know, it was a real gut punch. You know, I think it's one thing to have your guys kind of be locked up and, you know, to a certain degree, Embiid and Simmons have really not been themselves in this series. Yeah. But to compound that with just atrocious mental mistakes uh, in high-pressure situations, it's rough. And, uh, you know, after the game, Brett Brown sort of hinted. He's like, you know, we are young. This does kind of happen. But then he raced away from that and said, you know, he didn't want to make any excuses. I think that was the right thing for him to do, but I'm sure, you know, he was in his uh, coach's office after the game just pounding a table thinking, man, like, I wish our point guard wasn't 21. I wish Joel Embiid, you know, had a little bit more seasoning to him, a little bit more refining, uh, because they just showed their age in that game. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I understand the youth explanation for the Sixers, 
But they also entered this series looking so much better than the Celtics have. I mean, the Celtics, I understand their defense has been great, and they and we're gonna get to the Celtics side of this because they've been super impressive across the board. But this is the same Boston team that was like duking it out with a Bucks team that was on its last legs, and I don't think that we should overstate how great they are in terms. I mean, like. They're winning this series, but I think a lot of it is the Sixers losing these games, and like it, it is sort of disastrous. I, like I think it's a bigger deal than some people have made it. I, I mean, the disappearance of Ben Simmons through most of these games has been really, really concerning, and 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 Bede has been better and isn't isn't necessarily wilting away. But he's been pretty sloppy on offense, and he's been getting exposed on defense. And compounding matters, the two of them have not really worked together on the court. I think game four, they were more successful playing apart, and Brett Brown has figured that out, and he almost has to stagger them exclusively, and it's working, and TJ McConnell is helping in that regard. But just the whole fit of the team looks so much more discombobulated now than it did two weeks ago. And it, like, it's forced me to do a double take and it, it would freak me out if I were a Sixers fan. Yeah, I, that might be going a little bit too far for me. I think to a certain degree, Simmons is a victim of his own expectations. If he hadn't played so well, the triple doubles against Miami and looked like he had just made this seamless transition to the playoffs, then I think what he's going through right now would be more uh, expected and, and people wouldn't maybe be so freaked out by it. And you can even say the same thing for Donovan Mitchell, too. I mean, in the second round here, Mitchell, uh, you know, basically, if it's not at the rim, he's not hitting it uh, yeah. in this series. And he's looked like a different player because of that. But I like how both those guys. I'm criticizing your guy. So you have to turn around and criticize my guy. I see. That's no, fair. I'm not. Fair I'm not. I'm not I'm not criticizing anyone, Andrew. I'm just simply <laughs> pointing out that they both enjoyed fantastic first round series and there's been a little bit of a letdown in the second round and, and that tends to happen. And let's give credit not only to Houston's defense out west because it's been good. Let's give credit to Boston's defense. And I think the number one thing that we need to do when we when we're, you know, accurately appraising this series uh-huh. is pointing out that Al Horford's been the best player in the series, right? And that's not something that he I expected. He definitely, definitely has. It doesn't make for good podcasting. It doesn't make for good radio, you know, <laughs> yeah. coming on here. And, you know, like I, I already test the limits, you know, with my takes about Tim Duncan and, and all these Middleton. other players. So, I, And Middleton, you know, all these other guys who just do it all and are under underappreciated. But Horford has been uh, really outthinking, outsmarting, outworking Embiid inside. And he's been very, very consistent. His own offense has been strong. He's, he's really picked his spots nicely. Uh, he's gotten some great help from, you know, amazing play designs from Brad Stevens, you know, late in game three. Uh, but he's done a lot of hard work by himself in one-on-one situations. And uh, that's why they're up. You know, I think that he's, you know, not the flashiest guy. His podium uh, game is weak, Andrew. It's <laughs> terrible. I watch every single podium that he sits through. Sometimes he answers questions in both English and Spanish. He's not interesting in either language. <laughs> he's he's purposefully boring, but he's been the best guy in this series by a considerable margin. Well, it's funny with Horford because I've talked to him. I wrote a feature on him a couple years ago, and uh, he is really kind and forthcoming and articulate 
and uh, and I enjoyed talking to him. And then like 30 minutes later, I realized like he didn't say a single thing that was remotely interesting. So the problem is not that he's not intelligent. He's just maybe too intelligent and really good at just sort of offering up empty cliches and keeping it moving, which is probably the smarter way to play it if you're a professional athlete. Well, but you, you know one thing? My middle school drama teacher, Mrs. Titus, bless her heart, she told me that when in doubt, smile and nod. Yeah. That was her advice throughout <laughs> life. Al Horford is an A1, you know, smile and nodder. He is so good at that, and he is really intelligent. He's just too smart to get into these headline situations, and and that's another thing with Embiid. I mean, this guy's making headlines after every single game. I mean, would you consider them distractions? At one point, uh, you know, he he says that he's not getting any foul calls. You know, that kind of worked, actually. He got some more calls Mm -hmm. in, in game four, but after game four, he comes back and uh, you know, he's taking shots at Terry Rozier, saying he's uh, not tall enough to, you know, punch him in the face because uh, he's too short when they went kind of chest to chest there, you know, fighting over control of the ball. I mean, I kind of thought he would dial it back and be smart enough to dial it back. But if anything, he's going the other way. He's like running straight into the hate. He's <laughs> wearing that silly Twitter T-shirt that you mentioned, and he's just picking fights with every single person. Yeah, I mean, Embiid really only knows one speed and I think that's why most everyone loves him and I love him for it I will say it's a lot less endearing when you're down three games to zero and now three games to one to a team that you probably should be beating I mean even if you look at the first three games of the series the Sixers probably should have won two of those games so it's a little less charming to watch him talking shit to Marcus Morris and be like, oh, yeah, Embiid, you're hilarious. That's amazing. Like, And I wouldn't have said that the thing afterward about Terry Rozier, given this, the Definitely situation <laughs> of the series. Like, it's a little rough. Look, as someone who has taken anti-Celtics stances all season long, Terry Rozier is scary, Andrew. He's pretty scary. I mean, he seems like he hits every shot that he needs to hit, especially at home, and he can absolutely put them away in Game 5. It can happen, and I I just would not have said that if I was Embiid. Uh, The other thing, too, is his decision-making in terms of when he's got the ball in his hands. Like, How often is Embiid making the right decision and, and finding efficient shots for himself or passing out of those situations to find his teammates right uh you know it's pretty clear halfway through this series that Simmons wasn't going to be that top level uh Ben Simmons type player like he was in the first round right usually you know superstar guys adjust right so like if LeBron sees Kevin Love's having a bad game LeBron's not going to be you know wasting a ton of time doing it he's going to put more on his own shoulders I think in this series, it's just kind of been this sloppy, choppy effort for Embiid to sort of, you know, assert himself a little bit more. Uh, and it's led to a lot of turnovers. It's led to a lot of situations where he's sort of posting up to nowhere and not really getting that high quality of a shot as he should. Yeah. Uh, again, lots of credit to Al Horford. Also credit to Aaron Baines. I mean, <laughs> it, it's so easy to laugh at this guy for getting posterized. And Lord knows everyone, <laughs> if you've been on Twitter, I think like the welcome gift from Twitter when you sign up for an account, it's like, you know, they have that little bird logo and then they send you like 15 videos of Aaron Baines getting dunked <laughs> <Totally>. on. <laughs> the guy is doing his job. I mean, it's been a pretty impressive showing from him too. So uh, I, I guess long-winded way of saying, uh, this will be a, a learning experience, not just for Simmons, who just looks a little bit shook, uh, but also for Embiid, who's going to look back at the tape during the summer and be like, why did I do this? Why did I do this? Why do I do this? You know, Horford got me again. There's going to be a lot of that going on um, you know, in the post- postmortem. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. I mean, Embiid, 
just looking at him, even during the year when he was dominating people, you could see he needs to lose 10 or 15 pounds. And I think that has become more obvious during this series. And when I talk about being concerned from a Sixers perspective, like, I don't know, it's it doesn't seem like a great sign that the Celtics, it seems like their game plan is to allow Embiid to do whatever he wants or not do whatever he wants, but they... Boston it is Boston feels better when the offense is running through Embiid and uh and it speaks to how inefficient he's been but I also think it's partly a Ben Simmons issue too because when your point guard can't shoot and the way Simmons is is running the offense like a lot of times Embiid is catching the ball out at 16 and 17 feet from the rim and like I understand that the post-up isn't efficient, and I understand that Embiid needs to get more efficient with his game in general and better at making decisions, but you put any big man in that position and ask him to score, and they're going to have problems, and that's what the Sixers have been doing because the options are limited with with Simmons struggling like this. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, the answer is not to slow everything down, scrap the fun offense they've been running all year and just pound and beat on the block and like hope he's going to come through with the 50 point game. Like we all kind of realize that's not going to work, yeah. but he is facing extra bodies like you're mentioning because of the Simmons factor. And then I think his answer, you know, because he's had to work so hard for position down low and because uh, the flow that they really captured and the pace that they really had in that first round series has just evaporated because of Boston's defense. Uh, you know, he has sort of kind of come to the rescue, you know, it's like uh, captain save a possession out on the, <laughs> on the perimeter, like trying to go grab the ball. And then his decision-making struggles out there too. I mean, a lot of the time he's taking uh, mid range and out jumpers in situations that just bother me. Yeah. It's like, you just check that up as a bad shot. If you're Boston's defensive coordinator, you're sitting there saying, we just want another possession. You know, we're winning this math game possession after possession after possession, uh, because Embiid's bailing them out with his decisions and sometimes his turnovers too. I, I think he's been sloppy as well. And, uh, you know, Simmons didn't have the world's greatest entry pass to him, you know, late in game three, but I thought Embiid could have worked harder to, to receive that pass. Yeah, He was tired. Uh, yeah, and yeah, absolutely. He has been tired. And so uh, it will be interesting when this summer comes, you know, assuming Boston does kind of close this series out of does Philly react to what happened or do they overreact? You know, do they panic? Mm-hmm. Like not only just with like what kind of moves do they make in terms of trying to go headhunting for other superstars or like putting Markel Fultz into sort of trade scenarios or some of the other things that we speculate about. But like, what do they decide to do with MB? Do they look at this playoffs and conclude this guy has to like lose a lot of weight and get really skinny and like totally uh, becomes a player who's comfortable like sprinting around the perimeter? Or do they just double down and say, no, he's he's who he is. He'll mature just gradually. He'll get his legs and, and go forward. And then what the heck do they do with Simmons' shot? I have no answers. And you know, I've been Simmons's, you know, major defender. You know, I would probably wear... Uh, a kangaroo chain. You know, I, I'm, <laughs> I would I'm too. If, I, if if Simmons wants to give me my own kangaroo pendant, I'm in. <laughs> Welcome to the team, Andrew. <laughs> but, uh, squad. The, the, yeah, Roo gang over here. But uh, my point is that even I don't know what you do with that shot because it, he's got to get it better. And his shot selection, I thought, in game four was getting pretty shaky too. I mean, he was taking a lot of tough twos because he wasn't able to get to the basket yeah. uh, quite as well. And just my final thought in terms of Boston's defense and, and the Simmons factor is this. 
you know, we had compared Giannis versus Simmons, you know, which one would you rather have going forward? Who's got the highest ceiling and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't we say a lot about Giannis's offense that he was able to produce and carry Milwaukee to game seven in the first round without a Joel Embiid on his team, you know, without anyone besides Middleton really uh, to support him. I mean, the fact that he had so much success and it goes back to that Brad Stevens quote where he's just like almost disgusted at how good Giannis is. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're seeing how well Boston matches up with an elite point forward in Ben Simmons. I mean, that's where he is. He's right. going to be an all-star starter next year. Uh, and wait, to wait, see whoa, that Giannis, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. I don't think he's well, going to be an all star starter. Andrew, the fans vote. You know they're going to be the next wave. Uh, Come on. Him and Embiid are both going to start. Too crazy. Uh, we, we can bet on that one. The, but my point is this Giannis succeeded in lots of ways that, uh, that Simmons hasn't. Yeah. And that, that gulf between the two of them has been a lot wider than I expected. Yes. The point is well taken. Our planned Giannis Ben Simmons deep dive has to be put on hold for at least 24 months. <laughs> Let's all sort of take a deep breath after this series. Um, I think one of the points you made in there was pretty interesting. Fultz's skill set would help the Sixers a ton in this series. They need someone else who can handle the ball next to Simmons and penetrate and put some pressure on the defense. And we saw a little bit of that with with TJ McConnell tonight playing that role, and he was great. Um, by the way, TJ McConnell, I don't know if you ever heard the rights to Ricky Sanchez live podcast, but he was kind of drunk and was just awesome for like 45 minutes straight on that podcast, and I've rooted for him ever since. And uh, it's really cool to see him show up in the playoffs and he's he's been a legitimate factor and one of the only I, guys who's consistently there for the Sixers every night so that's been cool can I just interject real quickly he gave the opposite of that performance on the podium because oh, you know TJ McConnell got the podium game <laughs> game four and he got this huge wind up question from I don't know if it was a sports radio guy or somebody was like TJ, what do you tell all the people out there who said you would never, ever be an NBA player? And TJ is like, that's their opinion. I just go out there and play my game. <laughs> it was just like, he completely like, it wasn't even sidestepping. He just like jumped out of the way of the question from like 15 feet away. And the guy was just like holding the microphone See, uh, very awkwardly. We need to get a couple drinks in TJ and packed like 600 insane Sixers fans into the media room. And we'll, we'll get a different version of TJ McConnell next time. Um, so what you're saying is if they come all the way back and win this series, game seven at the podium, Spike and Mike can be up there with TJ and, and just exactly. maybe coordinating the interviews <laughs> instead of the PR people. That's the ideal setting from a content perspective um, for TJ McConnell anyways. I think Embiid is good regardless. Uh, but your point, though, on Fultz, it's setting up a really interesting summer for the Sixers because I think they're going to have a lot of opportunities to go after people and Fultz is a real asset. And in addition to kind of underwhelming performances from Simmons and Embiid, like we've seen the supporting cast, like the clock has hit midnight on some of these guys. And they like, I think part of the problem with Simmons is so much of his game is predicated on kicking out to the perimeter and, and banking on those guys to make shots. And they haven't really made shots in this series. I mean, Dario oh, finally even, showed up in even game, in game four, four, but 
like I mean, even in game four, Ilyasova, Covington, Bellinelli are giving you nothing. I think they're like combined one for ten on threes. What happened? You know? Yeah, yeah, and and you, like you look back to the Heat series, and all those guys were unconscious, and so it makes sense that the Sixers two weeks ago looked better than they actually were, and uh, it's been a little sobering, and so it's setting up for a big summer for Brian Colangelo where he's going to have to try and consolidate some of these assets and get another piece or two on the wing. And, uh, and it, like if Fultz, is not going to be that guy? And if, and if the Sixers don't think he's going to be playable next year or the year after, I mean, I don't even know if you think like two years down the line, like this, the window is pretty open now. And um, I'm not saying you panic trade Fultz, but I, I would definitely, be open to it if I were Philly at this point. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think he's in those talks. If you don't trust him to play him, you know, in a series, yeah, then, and and that's been you know, it, like that's been a factor in this series because on the other side, I mean, we've been over it with Tatum, but I just can't believe how good he is. Like his game is so refined, and I mean, he's kind of their go-to guy for long stretches of the game. I know Horford has been kind of their rock. But Tatum is showing up over and over again as well. And, uh, I mean, that has been a real advantage for, for Boston in every single one of these games. Is, is Tatum is, is, like, strangely reliable and more so than anyone on Philly. Yeah, this may reveal something about myself, but I my favorite character on The Wire was Marlo. I mean, I know he's like <laughs> the psychotic murderer with no personality and just the cool, like calm demeanor that spooks everybody. I just love that character. Yeah. Tatum's Tatum's game is Marlo. I mean, he is out there just bodying people left and right. I mean, the trash talk to Embiid after almost posterizing him was um, enough for even the most ardent anti-Celtics observer to kind of like hop across the line and get, get you know in what, on the, man? The, the Tatum standing, you know? <laughs> that's when that's when I finally turned on Tatum for good. And I'm now all in on Tatum as a future superstar when he tried to dunk on Embiid and then you could see him mouthing to Embiid, you got lucky. And then he proceeded to mm. miss the two free throws. But even just talking shit to Embiid like that, that won me over for good. And, and that, in addition yeah. to everything else he's done the last week. No, I gave him five points for the trash talk. Forget about the free throws. Um, but I was going to say, it's a weird contrast seeing Tatum just like diabolically score points for Boston. And then you see on the bench, It's hard. Fultz, they keep cutting away to Chan- Fultz. <laughs> And he's like chanting TJ, TJ during game four. And you're just like, you're not supposed to be here. This is not how your life was supposed to go, Markel. Like, come on, get it together. But hey, at least he's a good teammate. Uh, but yes, he's going to be in, in these uh, these trade talks. I, I Why not? Yeah. I mean, I think they should at this point. Yeah. Uh, I, a couple other things that we should hit. What are your impressions of Brad Stevens so far? He's a great coach, Andrew. Come on. We don't need to hit that. <laughs> I guess I think probably every NBA podcast is obligated to gush over Brad Stevens for like five minutes based on this series. I just think I I was talking to somebody earlier this morning about Stevens and it remind like this series for me, uh, particularly game three was like, remember that LeBron game where he scored 25 points in a row and beat the Pistons on the road? 
Oh no, I completely forgot a great <laughs> moment from NBA history. Have you ever heard of Michael Jordan and Double Nickel? <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I've heard of it. Well, this series to me is like that that series was for LeBron with Brad Stevens. Like everybody knew he was good and then toward the end of this season there were some murmurs about maybe he's overrated. I think you even said he was overrated at one point. No, you said Quinn Snyder was so. the better coach. Brad Stevens is pretty much untouchable as far as I'm concerned after this series. Like just there there's so many little things that he gets right and it's weirdly cathartic to watch a coach just nail all those things whether it's like taking a timeout at the perfect time. The substitution patterns are always great for Boston. Uh and then the ATO stuff, that's like deep cut hoop nerdery that I don't totally understand. But he's just so fucking good at those, and uh, and like to to have literally a game winning ATO was almost too perfect, and makes me kind of sick to my stomach thinking about how many Boston fans were like going nuts over that. But Stevens is incredible. Yeah, I mean, you shouldn't be too jealous. You got Scott Brooks. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's driving. Can me you insane. can you ever? Can you ever imagine Washington pulling off a series of screenplays like that oh to set my up a wide-open lob over the top? I mean, you know not what? in 100 years. The other, the other day, a Wizards fan on Twitter went through like all 30 coaches in the NBA and picked out coaches you would want over Scott Brooks. And I, I swear to God, he put yes on like 26 or 27 coaches around the league, some of whom had vacancies. So I don't even know how that was possible, but... It, uh, I agreed with every interim choice. coach X, the empty seat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> passing up Scott Brooks in some situations. It was tough. Um, all right. Okay. Let's refocus. I got some questions for you. Okay. Though. Um, so on this subject of the wizards, um, oh, first of all, just to close off the point about the ATOs, the fact that that play call bamboozled Covington and it did because he completely misplayed the entry pass, right? He's like fronting. Horford probably confused, expecting that he was going to have help on the backside. There was no help. Yeah. By the time Horford sealed him off, it was too late. Was probably the most impressive part about it because Covington's like a legit all defensive player, right? He has not had a good series. I'm with you on that. Like he, you know, it's it's kind of been one of those uh, awakening moments for him. Not only just their shooters, uh, but to have a guy like on that level get burned that badly on the sort of the game deciding play. I mean, you, you got to tip your hat to the coaches and also to Horford for a great seal too. Right. Um, but on this point about the wizards, I'm sure you saw Markeith Morris wizards <laughs> forward was at the game, game four, uh, cheering on his brother Celtics forward, Marcus Morris. And he was wearing yes. his brother's Jersey. So I wanted to ask you, Andrew, let's imagine um, that you have a twin brother and you know maybe it's Alan Sharp okay and he <laughs> plays for the Celtics and you're playing for the Wizards would you first of all I'm sure you'd go to his game any good brother would but would you wear a Celtics jersey in public on a nationally televised playoff game to cheer on Alan Sharp yes or no well it's a complicated answer because first of all my reaction seeing Markeith in the stands in a Celtics jersey was to say, like, wow, that's great. Markeith found a way to let me down one more time this year. That's perfect. Good for him. <laughs> um, but me personally, I don't know, because I don't know if the Wizards are good enough and or competent enough to even like call themselves rivals with the Celtics at this point. So 
it wouldn't necessarily be as blasphemous as you're implying, but the answer is no. I would not wear a Celtics jersey based on how corny it is to dress up in the jersey of like your relative. Uh, but Markeith and Marcus Morris have that weird twin shit going on. They have all the exact same tattoos. They dress alike. So, like, we're that ship has sailed as far as those two are concerned, I think. Yeah, I wasn't even going for blasphemy so much as, like, pitiful. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. when, when you're out here just, like, saying how basically every single aspect of the Celtics organization is better than the Wizards organization, I mean, you've made that very clear here over the last couple of months, like, forcing me into a lot of anti-Boston stances. Right. I'm passing the buck completely on all of those, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but the, to then come back out with the Celtics jersey on, I'm not sure you could live that down. Yeah, no, I absolutely absolutely not. Um, I have two more. Okay, I got... Hold on. No, I've got one more question. Okay. I'm in charge right now, Andrew. Here's the question. <laughs> in the annals of NBA history, where does shooting off the confetti for a tie rank on like the all-time self-owns? <laughs> I... Andrew, I was like thinking really hard to try to come up with something that's worse than doing that. They wouldn't even do that in soccer. Like, you know, the stupid American meathead fan loves to be like, oh, soccer, it ends in ties. What kind of a sport is that? Like, they shot off confetti for a tie in a playoff game and then they lost in overtime. It's one of the biggest cell phones ever. The only thing that I could come up with in my own like lived experience uh-huh. was the, bla- the Blazers through a parade like a really large parade for making the playoffs like (laughs) just making the playoffs and they had like there was a whole stage set up it was like in downtown thousands of people showed up like they had speeches they like passed a microphone around what year was was there oh man this was probably uh maybe 2009 uh it it was the first year they had made the playoffs after the quote-unquote jailblazer era so it was like it was like this big PR machine, you know, it was an organization, you know, business side decision, not really a basketball operation side decision, trying to like, you know, get some positive momentum and capitalize on it. But then they lost in the first round because of course they yeah. did, right? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big sell. You know what though? The- I think if you're coming off of a prolonged absence from the playoffs and you're coming in, they probably had a young team in 2009. I don't really recall who was on that team. Is that like Brandon Roy era? Yeah, B. Roy Aldridge. You know. Yeah, well, so I think they probably knew going in that they weren't going to make that much noise. So I, it doesn't bother me as much as the the conf, the confetti didn't really bother me at all. I just felt really bad what? because it was just such an obvious low hanging fruit metaphor for like the larger trajectory of the Sixers over the last couple weeks and like. I think we all sort of penciled them into the finals after game five of the first round. And uh, I don't know. We all kind of dropped the confetti a little too early on that team. Okay, good point. I like your symbolism. They're very nice. But I have to take issue with this, Andrew. The How could that not bother you? That was awful. I mean, <laughs> well, come on. It's not like it was done intentionally. I mean, some poor guy thought that Bellinelli hit at three. They weren't just like celebrating making it to overtime. The guy hit the Bellinelli shot from like 14 feet. It wasn't know, even close to a three. Come on. <laughs> Look, he's probably firing the confetti from the Raptors. It's tough. I don't blame that poor guy. He's had a hard enough week as it is. 
I have look, come two on. more questions. What would Pop do? <laughs> he would know time, score, situation. I'm just saying, look, the, the Cafetti guy maybe needs to go study in San Antonio, kind of get his general basketball awareness up before next season. No, you know who needs to go to San Antonio? We need to send Markel Fultz to San Antonio. We need Kawhi in oh. Philly. Send Fultz to San Antonio. He can take two years in Austin, out of sight, out of mind in the G League. Get his game right. He'll he'll get that that shot doctor in San Antonio. What's his name again? Uh, Chip yes. Anglin. So you're you're suggesting like the Austin Toros? It's going to be like junior college, exactly. like Austin Grad Toros junior college with Chip Anglin. <laughs> Let's make it happen, Philly, um, and San Antonio. All right, Boston question. How much better would the Celtics be with Kyrie Irving there? Because I really can't figure out how much of a difference he would make in this series. Oh, I think they'd be better. I mean, they're playing smart a lot. You know, he's not a perfect True. player. He's had a good series, uh, but, you know, he's had to play a lot. Uh, I mean, I think that they would be noticeably better. Uh, how about you? Well, I just think their defense is so awesome right now, and they're finding ways to get scoring from other places. And, like, obviously Kyrie raises their ceiling in a finals setting. And he's really important to their future. I'm not not jumping out here with like a trade Kyrie take, but just from a schematic perspective, I I I am not entirely sure that they would be like that much more dominant with him on this team. I think you add Kyrie and Gordon Hayward, and they start to get scarier uh, because of those guys and their ability to sort of get buckets in the final six minutes of a game. But to date, they like Boston is is finding ways to score, and we should probably knock on wood here because all of this optimism could easily lead to the Sixers winning in seven. Like this this three one lead does not feel all that secure. Uh, but it's just something. It's a passing thought that I've had in a couple of these games. I think they would be definitely better, but I think your point's well taken. And honestly, it's more interesting than saying, yeah, if they had an all star point guard on the court, they'd be better. <laughs> yeah. So. We should just I think it's on. a little bit more nuanced than that, but you're right. Um, last last question here. Which of these teams has the brighter future right now? Well, that's tricky. I mean, I think if I was drafting of all these guys, you know, I think I would take uh, Embiid and Simmons before any of Boston's individual players. But I, I still feel like we've only gotten like half of Boston's youth movement kind of uh, unleashed here because they've still got more picks coming. Uh, because both Tatum and Brown are still very young, because Embiid's not only had a history of injuries, but he's also already 23, so he's closer to his ceiling than I think a lot of people realize. Um, I think you can make a really strong case that if you want the whole package, all these young guys who Boston's going to have here over the next three or four years, and they're in a system that's coached by Brad Stevens, that you would prefer to have all of those pieces than Philly's entire package. And you know, I know that sounds crazy coming out of my mouth, uh, but I'm kind of leaning towards Boston right now. I got to say, um, in part because Tatum has been so consistently strong uh, in this playoffs, and you know Philadelphia has an excellent defense. You know it, their numbers have checked out all season long defensively, and Tatum's still getting it done. I think that's probably got me tilting slightly towards Boston's uh, side. But mm-hmm. I could also see a scenario where 
you know, Ben Simmons comes back in next year's playoffs and they, he just takes them to the finals. You know, I could absolutely see that happening too. Yeah. I mean, Ben Simmons dominated so thoroughly for the final three months of the season, or I guess maybe it was two months of the season, but like he was so good for so long that he kind of dominated any skepticism out of me. And now the last four games has brought me back to full skeptic on Simmons. And I've kind of freaked out about buying into his future, but you're right. There's absolutely a chance that he develops a 10 or 15 foot jump shot over the next year or two. And, and it's just like completely unstoppable long-term. Um, I think if we're talking, and this is a very sort of like first takey, topic well, but let me let me jump in real quick because i would say my the skepticism you just expressed for simmons is how i feel about Fultz, and yeah. so like that's one reason why i didn't even mention him when i was talking about like the whole buffet of what both teams have because i just have no idea what he's going to be and we've already talked about it like he is he's a smart player to trade like if you can if you can get something good back especially in a trade for a superstar who's maybe disgruntled like a Kawhi leonard I would do it. I, I just yeah, would. yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's that's what I think it comes down to, which is kind of perverse and cruel to all the process fans. But I think a lot of the Sixers' future hinges on what Colangelo is able to pull off this summer. And uh, I mean, he, like most of the moves thus far have been lateral moves at best, um, and and temporary sort of quick fix situations and like he's not going to resign guys like Bellinelli probably isn't going to bring back Redick if uh if they can get someone else so I think the Sixers have a higher immediate upside because if they can land a Paul George or Kawhi this summer you know they're going to be really really scary and and Joel loses 10 or 15 pounds and Simmons gets a little bit better and a little bit more comfortable but long term betting on the team full of like six eight 22 year olds who are all like playing their ass off right now and the best coach in basketball is the celtics are definitely the more secure bet yeah for sure i guess the the simplest way to summarize what i was trying to say earlier is like i'd lean celtics if the question is who's gonna win 50 plus games the most seasons consecutively like during these young guys cores career because i think you can pretty much pencil them in for that you know at this point um, and then for Philly, I mean, that's going to, you know, there's going to be some variance there. If Embiid misses time, um, you know, that that would shake things up depending on what they do here short term in terms of trying to, uh, you know, cash out some of these assets. I mean, that could change how long their window lasts. I, I think Boston's got, you know, basically the longest, widest window uh, of any of these upcoming teams in the league. So- I mean, I don't even know who would be. I guess Philly's second, but I would put Boston in that pole position. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're saying Boston has the better chance to be consistently good over the next five or ten years, whereas Philly has a better chance to be great or or a more realistic chance to be great. I would just say Philly has the higher ceiling. I don't okay. know if it's a more realistic yeah, chance because be I mean they are betting on after this week. Yeah, they're betting on Embiid's health. Right. I mean that's still a huge variable, and they're also betting on Simmons like dramatically changing his game. Right. Yeah. Um, whereas I think Boston, it's just sort of like it's about the gradual and steady improvement, and they're going to get there. You know. Okay. Well, listen, you've put in your time, and we can now move to the Raptors Finally. for Holy ten cow. minutes. Uh, Jonas says Andrew Sharp's. The 2018 Raptors are the 2015 Hawks take is looking more and more like the most prescient opinion of the season, 
especially when they get swept by LeBron tonight. And indeed they did get swept by LeBron. Look, I take no joy in being right about that. And honestly, I would feel outright sympathy for the Raptors if I hadn't been yelled at by Toronto fans for like an entire morning the other week. But so you should be out here saying, Lowry, he sure looked pretty neutralized, didn't he? <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. You know what actually convinced me that they were the Hawks earlier this year? What's that? Uh, so the Raptors, maybe it was a Raptors fan actually, like dubbed over one of the intros from The Office, which is a show that I I don't even know if you've seen. But oh, I've <laughs> okay, seen. good. So they dubbed over it with care with like the entire roster introducing them as if they were characters on the office and it was an awesome video it was pretty adorable and like just somewhat like a feel good sort of social media moment it was i think late march it hit the internet and uh it was just one of those things where it made me realize how much people love this team and it all just seemed too good to be true and that's when it it all crystallized for me that this was the 2015 hawks and i'm sorry that it's ended this way because it's a bummer because i like all those guys individually but now that i've said that i will let you do your little dance here i've got a lot of takes on load first of all (laughs) i need to uh this came in from Open Floor Globe member Kevin. Now, you'll remember Kevin because he customized a Raptors jersey with my last name on yes. it and then wore it to a game in Cleveland. Condolences to Kevin. Kevin writes in to say, quote, Here in Canada, the entire series was broadcast on TSN, uh, and it was presented by, and then drum roll, please, Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom. So you were talking about, <laughs> you know, the premature confetti being symbolic. <laughs> Oof. That is very, very symbolic. Now, Andrew, I also remember, you know, not too long ago, you were trying to get me into a fight with my guys at the starters, and I love the starters, and you were trying to say, yeah, you're going to set me up where I'm going on my rants about how, you know, DeMar wouldn't even start for the Warriors, and they could, like, pop shots and, you know, and laugh at me and, and come back at me, Andrew. I just want you to know that DeMar DeRozan couldn't even close games for the Raptors. I mean, right. the team that falls apart more than anybody in the playoffs. This guy's not even out there in the fourth quarter. Instead of rubbing that in your face, though, I just wanted to mention and congratulate you because you not only had the same statistical production as DeMar DeRozan in the fourth quarter of Game 3, you also had the same statistical production as DeMar DeRozan in the fourth quarter of Game 4 because he got ejected and obviously didn't do anything. And In Game 3, of course, he got benched. It was the best move that Casey made in the entire series. It almost prompted a a major comeback from a double-digit deficit. But on top of that, Andrew, and and here's the real kicker, you also had the same statistical production as Rodney Hood for the entirety (laughs) of Game 4. Because guess what? 25 of the 26 active players for Game 4 saw the court. Most of them did something. I believe they all at least got a point Uh or a rebound or, or something on the court. Uh, the one who didn't was Rodney Hood. And I don't know, was his DMPCD the Rodney Hood game you were telling us to wait on? Or are we still waiting on the Rodney Hood game? No, man. I really like what Ty Lue is doing right now with my guy Rodney Hood. <laughs> He's saving him for the saving finals. Him? And I think that's a brilliant move. <laughs> and and Lou was great in this series. But that's one of the things that I don't think a lot of people appreciate. Um but uh, yeah, Rodney's going to come through. I'm not worried about it. Um, and look, the DeRozan stuff was kind of bizarre 
to watch because he's he's clearly kind of in his own head in this matchup. I mean, I think even you would concede, King DeRozan hater, that he is not as bad as he looked in the final couple games of this series. And I think part of that is LeBron and part of that is just the kind of crushing weight of all these expectations crumbling. Um, And it was a bummer to watch. To me, I still, I like, I understand the people who say that every option should be on the table this summer. And I agree with that. Like, I think if you're Masai, you're willing to hear offers for anyone on the roster, but I wouldn't necessarily pull the trigger on blowing this up just for the sake of change. And, uh, that's kind of where I am right now. I think the, the the Raptors have a lot of good pieces around those guys. Siakam is going to get better. OG is going to get better. Uh, I would maybe consider a coaching change because it seems like Casey's consistently a step or two behind in these playoff series. Um, and that was true even in some of the Wizards games. And so I don't know. <laughs> like I'm glad that the Raptors lost in four because I did not want to have to watch this like prolonged. Yeah, so a couple of things. So remember months ago, we also had another Raptors fan who was all mad at me and saying, oh, sample size, you know, you're trying to cherry pick data about DeMar's three-point shooting. Yeah, we and did. He's such an improved <laughs> three-point shooter. We got a lot of angry now, Andrew, Raptors emails about DeRozan this year. There, there's no question. And we just got to answer. And like, here's the facts. Like May came. So let's talk about what happened. DeMar DeRozan completed the entire series without making a single three-pointer. That's not the first time that's happened, Andrew, because that happened last year against the Cavs. That happened in 2016 against the Cavs. He's now gone 14 games against Cleveland, logging more than 500 minutes total without making a single three-pointer. So all that talk midseason, oh, he's such an improved player. He's really transformed his game. He's part of this culture change. Bunk. You know, and so I hear what you're saying in terms of, oh, you know, he's better than he showed uh, in this series. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe that his game just doesn't really work in the playoffs. And look, defensively, he had a couple of nice moments early in the series, uh, late in game one. But he was, you know, less than zero in terms of, uh, you know, defensive impact in this series. He was very easy to pick on whenever they wanted to. Uh, just no physicality whatsoever. And then when you look at his plus minus, his total impact in terms of what's happening when he's on the court, I'm going to give you three guesses. Can I, you name his three worst plus minus performances from this entire season? <laughs> okay. Hold on. Just stick with me. I want you to help me guess his three worst plus minus performances from the whole season, Andrew. Right? Okay. Season's on the line. This guy's an all-star. He's probably going to be an all-NBA type guy. We expect big things from him. His worst plus minus performance, game four. His second worst plus minus performance of the season, game three. His third worst plus minus performance of the entire season, game two. The guy is a negative. You know, you just cannot keep him out on the court against a quality team that can exploit his weaknesses in the postseason. You can't do it. And I think, unfortunately, you know, if I'm looking forward for Toronto. Well, I think I earned this, Andrew. I've been hearing from people for months. This has been DeRozan Facts with Ben Golliver, the worst NPR podcast of all time. Well, he's also lost 10 straight games head-to-head to LeBron. Meanwhile, LeBron's averaged 33-8-8 against the Raptors during those 10 straight wins. But I digress. Uh, Here's what I would do if I was Toronto. I think it's very difficult to trade DeRozan. Not impossible, but difficult. I think, to me, Casey... 
I would still hang on there. I hear what you're saying about being a step late and like he was searching in game four and like putting Bebe, you know, Naguera out there at the end of the first half was a rough yeah. move. And the game got away it, from it them very not, quickly when he did that. It was not a blowout until Bebe hit the floor. And I don't know whether he was mandated to put Bebe in the game. I don't know what happened there. I Yeah, I think he was just searching. And I think after the game, I'm seeing a quote right now. Casey said, our, I thought our guys would come out and compete harder. So I don't know if he was like throwing Bebe out there and just sort of like as a sympathy move of like, look at your teammates struggling. You guys all need to like rally around him and play more, you know, play uh, with greater effort or what. But it was a poorly conceived idea and it backfired pretty bad. Um, but uh, I think I would still ride with Casey. He's built something pretty impressive there. To me, the move is to trade Lowry because he's older. You have all of these young guys. You can re-sign Van Vliet if you do trade yeah. him. And I've got a couple of ideas. What if we just put Lowry into some of these disgruntled trade, uh, you know, po- uh, you know, disgruntled point guard for disgruntled point guard <laughs> trade scenarios, right? Okay. Like, could you, could you see a scenario where he gets shipped to Minnesota for like Jeff Teague, right? Teague's got a big contract too. Uh, if you're Toronto, you could probably save a little money in that deal. And you just swap out Teague who, you know, didn't really fit that well in Minnesota. Uh, and Lowry and DeRose or Lowry and Butler, you know, potentially could be your new all-star tandem if you're Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, you know, another scenario, Reggie Jackson. I mean, if you're the Pistons and you're just fired Stan Van Gundy and you're trying to win because you've already got Blake Griffin's contract on the books. Are you to make the Raptors even more depressing than they already are? I don't want Reggie Jackson if I'm a Raptors fan. I don't want Jeff Teague if I'm a Raptors fan. I do that deal in a second if I'm Minnesota or Detroit. If it can, if you can find a way to make it work under the cap, but like. Oh, because you're loving your life so much in this scenario. My point is, if you make these moves, first of all, you clear out Lowry and his personality and all the hangups from the previous years. You get your team more aligned towards the younger players, uh, and you also decrease expectations. And I'm going to call this uh, Madison Avenue tanking, Andrew. It's like (laughs) high-class tanking, right? You don't want to be that 59-win team where everyone's targeting you and and you just crumble under the weight of the expectations. Because as we know, three games and land the 18th pick, and you'll be set for the future that way. That's your plan. You. You win like 45 games, you retool around these young guys, you cut costs because you shouldn't be paying for a winner, and they've got huge contracts on the books. I mean, we have to be honest, you really want to go into the luxury tax for this group? No, (laughs) under any circumstances, no matter how much money you're winning and how many Jurassic Park posters you're selling and uh, ad revenue you're making off of the latest movie franchise. No, like (laughs) you need to be realistic here, and you're going to have to take this thing apart piece by piece. You know, it's time to do it. Uh, it. This was embarrassing. And I think blaming the coach and keeping the same group together would be setting that next co- coach up for failure. I think that would be a really dumb move. But my last I think uh, that's point a fair on this, point. and then I'll, that's, that, there needs to be more la- changes than just the coach. There does for sure. And my last point on this, and then I'll cede the floor is I am very impressed by a lot of the Toronto termites who have continued to email in uh, to openfloormail at gmail.com. Mm-hmm openfloormail at gmail.com because last year they went running and hiding, Andrew. This year they're taking their lumps, they're emailing in, they're asking, you know, how can they fix? I really appreciate them doing that. Uh, But here's what I would say. I think they're being done a disservice by a lot of people in the local media up there in Toronto. For whatever reason, there's this knee-jerk reaction among the Raptors media members to say, don't change anything. We got to get out ahead of it. All the blow-up talk is stupid. 
The blow-up talk is not stupid, Andrew. They just got run off the court, embarrassed, humiliated. They need to change something. And I don't understand why everyone wants to immediately say, oh, everything's fine. Bring back the same group. We can go win 50 games again. It's going to be fantastic. Right. I, it makes no sense to me. The team is uh, too overpriced to do that. Uh, it's not working. You've got DeRozan in the locker room afterwards telling reporters that he needs to reevaluate himself mentally and, and whatever, top to bottom. That doesn't sound great. That's not what you like to hear after uh, you know your second round exit. And to me, something fundamental has to change with this group. It starts with the roster. Okay, that's that's a perfectly fair perspective. And I agree that the people, you shouldn't casually dismiss the option of blowing it up because I think that's, that could make sense. I also think that a lot of it is going to depend on what kind of market there is for some of these guys. I mean, Ibaka is borderline untradeable at this point, given the fact that he's got two years left on that deal. Um, I believe it's two years, right? I think so, but it's a huge number. It's a I mean, huge the earliest number. you're going to yeah. be able to trade him is next summer, right? And so that's what I mean by piece by piece. If you move Lowry, get a little bit younger, get a little bit cheaper this summer, and then next summer you come back around, you ship out Surge, uh, and you retool that way. That's that's how I would do it. That's why it's a you know a Madison Avenue tank. Like you're still. <laughs> You know, you're still winning. You're still selling seeds. You know, fans have a reason to cheer for the scrappy guys, you know, the Van Vleets and the Siakams and the OG Ananobis of the world. Uh, and you just let this, you know, current uh, stink go. I mean, this is not fun. This should, you don't want to be back here again next year. You've already done this multiple yeah. times. Yeah. Well, that's certainly true. This was not fun. Um, but I, yeah, I've had enough Raptors talk. We should just move on. One question from David uh, on the LeBron side of this. David says, since it's getting to the point of the year when the greased pig Jordan LeBron takes reemerge, and since we're celebrating <laughs> distinctions without differences, I wanted to pose the question in a little bit of a different way. I was on day 10 of 5 a.m. exercising, asking myself if I was exercising with purpose or a purpose, and one of the trainers nice. was chatting near me. I heard him say that Jordan is the goat, but LeBron is the boat. The best of all time. I thought it was kind of oh. compelling, and maybe it's an off-ramp that could allow a detente in this sort of silly debate. But maybe I was just sleep-deprived and exhausted like I am two-thirds of the time I'm listening to the pod. What do you guys think? Uh, well, first of all, great email, David. I want to just... Well, it was a pretty good email. David, re-listen when you're awake. <laughs> yeah. You can listen to the Please same Please listen twice, twice if you're out there. Uh, but... As far as the greased pig aspect of this, I honest to God, I've said a lot of crazy shit on this podcast. I have never said that <laughs> LeBron is better than Jordan. I don't believe that and never have. So I'm not going to own that whatsoever. I did. The only time I came close to that was saying in the lead up to the 2016 finals, if LeBron is going down as one of the best players of all time, he's going to need a moment like this. And that's why I had a feeling that he was going to win that title. Uh, but as far as the LeBron Jordan thing, one thing that has kind of jumped out at me this week is the LeBron stands need to maybe take it down a notch. Uh, like this is a second round series and people are celebrating as if LeBron <laughs> is beating like, I mean, look, the, it's not that MJ was dominating like the best teams of all time, but I think the the Utah Jazz, a team that like 
Jordan repeatedly traumatized is still several rungs above the, this current Raptors team. So I'm impressed by LeBron and it's been so much fun to watch like the, the latest version of him and the last two years of his career. But I think we could kind of slow our roll on the Jordan comparisons. Yeah, I don't know if this is the same distinction he's talking about. I think it might be, you know, the GOAT versus BOAT thing. I mean, would you say that LeBron will have the greatest career of all time? I think we can safely say yeah, that and, by the time And it's you know done. what? I think to answer his question, I this is probably how the argument will settle. Is I, I think that it will be commonly held that Jordan was the greatest and had a mystique that will never be matched but LeBron was the best technical basketball player we've ever seen. And and I think the coolest part of the last few weeks and really the last few years is realizing that LeBron very much is the Jordan of this generation and is doing crazy shit that we're all going to be talking about for the next 30 or 40 years. Yeah, and I guess I just throw in the greatest career idea too because of the longevity factor. I mean, when you're looking at like the all-time rankings – uh, for you know playoff stats like points rebounds assists blocks steals i mean lebron is so high on all those categories if he's not already first and there's going to be some of these categories where if he continues to play for another five years his lead over everyone else is going to be so wide that when you look back at the history books in 50 years you're going to be like you know double checking the math <laughs> like is this real like so how did he possibly put up these numbers i agree with that to a point i also think like Jordan had insane longevity himself. And I I think that LeBron is benefiting numbers wise. LeBron benefits from a, a different era when everyone's numbers are a little bit inflated. And it's also easier to play longer, particularly given LeBron's skill set. And like he, LeBron will do it for 20 years and Jordan did it for 15 years at an insane level. And statistically, like I think MJ is still probably superior in a lot of respects, and uh, so to me, it it is kind of a distinction without difference. Um, and we'll ultimately kind of it'll be like a co rookie of the year situation where people will call LeBron the best of all time, but Jordan is like untouchable. Yeah, I mean, I I do think that doing it without any breaks, you know, so you're accumulating just constantly like that is a big point in LeBron's favor. And, you know, I'm obviously team Mike, but if he does do it for 20 years straight and he gets to the point where like he's got thousands more points uh, in the playoffs than any other player in history, including Jordan, like that counts for something. You know, we we can't just like uh, write that off as, oh, he's doing it against inferior competition. Like, no, he's doing it against generations of guys and he's overshadowing all of them. yeah the way i've always contextualized lebron is uh with jim brown where like jim brown was probably one of the like three greatest athletes of the 20th century and lebron is certainly that in my lifetime like he's probably the most unbelievable pure athlete that i'll ever see play any sport and uh I don't know. He's awesome. I just, the LeBron Jordan thing, I don't think the Raptors series really tips the scales one way or the other. If he beats the Warriors though, to reiterate what we said last podcast, all bets are off and I'm willing to to go there. Okay. Not to be captain obvious here, but don't you think the LeBron uh, stands have the right to do a little dance here after that shot in game three? That was a phenomenal (laughs) game winner. It was crazy. And everything he did in this series was crazy. I'm just saying it's like, you can appreciate him without feeling the need to to like go lecture people on Twitter about how this proves that they were always right that like Le- LeBron is is right there with Jordan. I don't know if I'm willing to go that far. 
know, I feel you. Also, the Game 3 game winner felt a little less special after the press conferences when Dwayne Casey's explaining how his team, even though they had a timeout, completely botched the defensive coverage and didn't trap when they wanted to trap. And it's just like, oh, okay. <laughs> like going back to your point of like, he's not exactly beating the 98 Jazz here. I mean, the Raptors aren't that special. Like on the most important play, which they had minutes to prepare for, they completely blew what they wanted to do within seconds of the ball being inbounded. You know, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, look. The high degree of difficulty, everything he did after that fact was very, very impressive. But to realize that like Toronto had a game plan and they just completely shot themselves in the foot as soon as the ball got checked in uh, did, you know, diminish it just like 5% in my eyes. This Raptors team came very close to losing to a Wizards team that, openly hated each other and had like two and a half good players. So I haven't been impressed by this Raptors team for like three or four weeks. And I'm glad that the rest of America is catching up with me. But listen, Ben, we are nearing the hour mark and we need to knock out a couple coaching discussions. We're not going to get to everything else we had planned. We're skipping the West. We'll save that for Friday. But um, Khalid, who's a Knicks fan, writes in to say, Surprisingly, the Knicks have an organization that is predominantly run by men of color. Steve Mills, president. Scott Perry, GM. David Fisdale, coach. Mike Woodson, rumored to be the lead assistant. Is this a first in NBA history? And for the record, I'm cool with the Fisdale hire. Um, The diversity aspect of this is pretty cool, although... I don't know. I would add that Steve Mills has presided over a ton of Knicks disasters at this point. So I don't know if his continued leadership is really all that encouraging. But what do you think of Fisdale in New York? Yeah, no, it's impressive. I mean, we should also note uh, New Orleans has, you know, Dell Demps and Alvin Gentry. Yeah. I mean, that's one that comes uh, to mind right off the top. But I know there was a lot of frustration uh, over the last couple of years in terms of like minority candidates really getting a, a chance to compete for the, the jobs. And uh, you know, there was multiple black head coaches fired, uh, you know, in a, in a string there, you know, Earl Watson and, and Fisdale. And I know some people were a little upset with that. So for Fisdale to get another opportunity, I think that's good. And he beat out a pretty strong, you know, group of candidates. I mean, you know, David Blatt for all the jokes we've made before. I mean, obviously he has a pretty big resume and, uh, you know, Mark Jackson coached the Warriors in the past, you know, whatever you feel about him. I mean, he's got a resume as well. So, uh, from that standpoint, I think this is really uh, a win for Fisdale. I mean, he lands on his feet, uh, zero expectations next season because, you know, who knows with Porzingis' health and in terms of how much he's going to play, if at all, uh, next year. And I think he wanted to modernize Memphis, right? His whole thing was, hey, Marcus Gasol, shoot more three-pointers. Hey, Mike Conley, shoot more three-pointers. Right. And I think he's got a franchise player in Porzingis who's already ready to do that. He already does it in huge high volume. He's a good shooter. And I think from that standpoint, he is going to um, hopefully form a pretty good, you know, player coach bond there where, you know, those guys are on the same page and he kind of shepherds uh, Porzingis's development. Now, the rest of his roster needs a lot of work. I mean, he, they did him no favors. Yeah. You know, he doesn't have a lot else to work with. Uh, but I think, you know, being able to have a soft launch into it where nobody really expects too much uh, and then, you know, kind of come back in his second season with Porzingis is, uh, you know, a pretty ideal uh you know, second job for a guy who was out pretty quickly and unceremoniously in Memphis. Yeah, I I am a little conflicted on this one. Um, I, I met Fisdale like three or four years ago in Vegas during summer league, and he was a really good guy. And I've had like a couple people since then around the league talk about how much they love Fisdale and how much everybody loves Fisdale. So like, he's definitely someone we should root for. 
And because of that, I'm worried about the Knicks fit. Uh, I mean, like you said, there's just, it's a mess there. And I, I think Fizdale is a good coach, but I'm not sure that he is like necessarily a top five coach. And I, th- I almost feel like you have to be brilliant to be able to transcend the mass dysfunction that you'll encounter elsewhere with the Knicks. And um, so I worry about it. I mean, like Steve Kerr was talking about it on a podcast with Bill Simmons, I think, earlier this year, how for most coaches, the like success or failure depends on, on the situation. And I think that was even true with Kerr, who turned down the Knicks and went to the Warriors. And so I... I I want Fizdale to succeed. I think you're right that having Porzingis shoot seven or eight threes a game is a great starting point and an upgrade over what the Knicks had been doing, which is like posting him up two feet behind the free throw line and telling him to just like create. And like it wasn't working that way. So I think that alone makes it an encouraging step for New York. But, uh, but I'm a little bit worried. Let me ask you this. If you're a Fizdale, will you take the Knicks job, the Suns job, or the Magic job? I would have waited. I, I mean, I don't know if I would have trusted any of those teams. I would have taken Milwaukee probably um, if if that was in the in the cards. I think it's a good sign that Fizdale turned down Phoenix. That's progress. And look, it could get a lot worse than coaching the Knicks. I, he's also going to be a great personality to be able to handle that spotlight, which I think should be a factor for the Knicks coach. And wasn't and it was a shortcoming of Jeff Hornacek. Did you get an uh, interview with Milwaukee? <laughs> no, it does seem like they're they're really uh, opening the field to all comers. It's like they got like twenty something interviews lined up. I mean, I hope they've blocked out the entire month to get this thing done. <laughs> I mean, good lord! Well, it's a big hire. I don't blame them. Uh, continuing on here. Chris says, the Phoenix Suns have a master plan, and it is plausible. Step one, suck. Step two, hire Igor Kokoskov. And then he goes through, oh, sorry, this is a note to myself. And then he goes through eight more steps where they acquire every Balkan player in the NBA, including Jokic, Miritic, Dragic, Teodosic. So uh, leaving aside that fantasy, creating the Balkan dream team, um, what did you think of Phoenix? Well, uh, it was not what I expected, so I guess give them credit. I mean, it sounded like they got turned down by a bunch of different people left and right, didn't yeah. they? Yeah, that's not a great sign. It's you tough. Know, but, I really like the uh, Budenholzer fit for them, and it, like his skills in development would have been a nice fit for all the, like, half good prospects they have on that roster but maybe that could be our man igor yeah i mean putting aside igor just like if you're devin booker and you're reading these reports about multiple coaches fizdale and boonholz are just passing on your job how are you feeling about that you know like is ownership committed to winning is it breaking down because of money like what exactly is happening there that would be a huge question i'd have if i was devin booker uh, but in terms of what they're trying to do, how much do you buy into this as all being sort of like a play for Luca? I mean, are they telegraphing this thing? I mean, it, they're going to be relying on like lottery luck to get Luca. I don't think Luca's going to last longer than the second pick at, at the latest. Uh, but it would be awesome to, to see him out there. I, I, like, I now want that to happen more than ever and, and sort of wanted it 
for I wanted a, a running mate for Devin Booker, and and Doncic would be awesome next to him. I'm not sure how much defense they would play, but uh, yeah, I think that'd be great. Well, now you're setting up a scenario where like the balls break against them in the lottery drawing. <laughs> so how much are they willing to like overpay to trade up to get him? You know, this is sort of like one of those Alfred Payton situations yeah, maybe. between Orlando and Philly. Can you just imagine them trading like three first round picks to move up two slots? Yeah, I could kind of see that. But um, no, we don't know. I mean, he's got a great reputation. Everyone speaks highly of him. Obviously, like half of your article that you wrote, you know, the 15,000 word oral history that you made me uh, edit when I was at Yosemite over Thanksgiving <laughs> yeah, uh, holiday, true. which I'm I'm still not over that. I mean, half the people quoted in that piece probably love Igor and swear by him and think he's going to be an amazing coach. But uh, much like the New York situation, like there's serious red flags at the top, you know, that go way above what any coach is able able to uh, fix or work around. So it will his success in this position will be entirely dependent upon how their young guys progress. And he's got that kind of a reputation, you know, being able to you know work well with those type of players, establish relationships. That's a good sign. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, he's he's certainly coaching with one hand tied behind his back just like every other son's coach here over the last five years, because, you know, his GM's McDonough, who's made just a, you know, comedy of errors and his owner's Robert Sarver, who should obviously sell yeah. the team. Yeah. It's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> One thing I, I enjoy about these coaching conversations every spring is that we are all almost always just flat out guessing as far as like the, the success or failure of particularly the assistants. We just have no idea, but, uh, it is cool that he's the first international head coach. I think that's an awesome step, and uh, he should go get Luca. Um, but continuing on here, speaking of firsts, Trey emailed this three weeks ago on April 18th, and he said, isn't Becky Hammond the obvious choice for the position in Milwaukee? She interviewed for the Bucks G- GM job two years ago, and she was almost a finalist. And Becky's Bucks? I mean, come on. What do you guys think? So what do you think, Ben? No, what do you think? I mean, I'm I'm interested. I mean, I've seen there's kind of been a debate on Twitter of, oh, you know, is is she really a qualified candidate? And I think that's unfortunate. You know, I think um, she's had an amazing playing career. She obviously knows her stuff. She's been around great minds in San Antonio. Yes, she might not be Popovich's lead assistant, but uh, I think she's earned the right to get a job interview. There's no question about it. And I think nitpicking that bothers me. Yeah. You know, I think that it's just something unsettling about that. Um, now is she going to wind up, you know, being able to, you know, stack resume side by side against somebody like Budenholzer who's still available? Now that's trickier. You know, that's, that's a tougher question. I think if I was Milwaukee and I said this, you know, a month ago, but I'd be looking hard at coach Bud because of, you know, his success, um, you know, instilling, uh, the type of offensive system in Atlanta that Milwaukee just hasn't had and converting a lot of those tough twos to easier twos is like priority number one for the bucks to me. And I think he's the guy to do that. Yeah. With Hammond, it's funny. You mentioned the reactions on Twitter. It just all this stuff gets so instantly politicized. Uh, When I first saw the news, it was Friday night and somebody texted it to me and I didn't I didn't check Twitter. And my first thought was that would be not the best idea. I don't think she would be the best fit in Milwaukee. But then the next day, I read all these people ranting about it and saying awful things on Twitter. And now I'm just like, fuck it. Give her Giannis. Whatever. She'll be fine. And uh, that's probably not the right reaction. But like, I think that Becky Hammond is qualified to be a coach in the NBA. 
and that's not based on any like intimate knowledge of of what she really does in San Antonio but I would trust pretty much anyone from the Popovich coaching tree and I read that long New Yorker profile on her and if if she's got Pop's vote of confidence I think it could work um and I think she's worth a shot um also, well, look, if nothing else, her summer league teams, you know, one to 12 looked a lot more competent than the Bucks did under Joe right. Crony. <laughs> it's and a low a bar. From a standpoint and a, and a personality standpoint, you know, she's better than Prunny. So, I mean, yeah. you take that for what you will. But uh, she she would command respect in that locker room. I think room. she would. Uh, I really do. I think, yeah. I think part of the reaction, like, people may have been celebrating the fact that she got an interview a little bit too much and, and we're almost sort of spiking the football over that. And I think that produced like a backlash of people who were just eye rolling and looking at some of that as performative. And so, I don't know, the way we process news on the internet is just deeply screwed up these days, but I think it's progress for her to get the interview. And I think we're probably no more than a few years away from her getting a real shot and a realistic look in the NBA, I think. Yeah, I mean, earlier this week, you were clowning me for having the easy take of superstars and fans shouldn't get into incidents and the NBA should try to step <laughs> in between those. And look, the easiest possible take is, congratulations, Becky. That's really cool that you got an interview. That should be the take without any sarcasm, yeah, without any is. undercutting, without any it's backlash. Just say, congratulations, Becky. This is this is a big deal. This is cool. Yeah, you know? it's a big deal, but it'll also be a bigger deal when you're actually a coach. And I, I, I don't think Milwaukee is the situation I would want her in now because they're in like an 18-month insane pressure cooker with Giannis and with a broken roster. I think Fizdale could work there or could have worked there because he had so much experience with LeBron and Miami and could sort of coach... Um, coach Giannis in that context and try to try to sort of bring that out of Giannis. Uh, but I wouldn't necessarily want that for Becky Hammond. But if... Yeah, what I'm saying is there, there shouldn't be any backhandedness to this. We shouldn't say it would be cooler if she's a full-time head coach sometime in the future, or it would be uh, more appropriate if she had an interview so that she could go line by line with all the other deserving male assistants out there. <laughs> yeah. like, just save all of that stuff and just say congratulations, Becky, good luck with your interview. And if you beat out all the other candidates and you get hired, fantastic. If not, that's okay yeah. too. It doesn't, there doesn't need to be any more layers to exactly. it or, or shading to it. Whatsoever. I, I completely agree. Um, and, uh, and I hope she gets a job somewhere in the next couple of years. Cause I think that would be really cool. And she sounds like a badass. I don't know if you read the New Yorker profile, but it was oh, very she impressive. Is. No, she is Andrew. I'm telling you, I still remember her performance at Summer League. She was unbelievable with the media. And I remember talking to you about this way back in October where we were saying, like, could she handle the New York media if she was the Knicks coach? And my my point then was she's the last person you have to worry about in that situation. Like, she would be able to yeah. handle it. Um, other coach news that we should hit. Uh, I heard that Charlotte is looking hard at James Borrego and is probably going to hire him, um, which – Again, an assistant coach that we know nothing about, but probably trust based on his Popovich ties. Also an interim down in Orlando, you know, totally transformed the Magic franchise for however many <laughs> games he was in charge. Yep, absolutely. Um, so, and then, of course, Stan Van Gundy. The, uh, the era is finally over, which I think is probably best for everyone. I'm bummed as a longtime Stan Van head but 
it was uh, the Pistons were were getting pretty dark there, and I think I'm happier that he's going to be collecting his salary, living out his days in Orlando. <laughs> Did the Blake trade get him fired? I don't think so because I think the Blake trade was half like a last ditch attempt to attract fans in that new arena. So I, I don't think it was entirely Stan Van who was spearheading that. Yeah, I just kind of feel like anytime you make like a $200 million bet, if there's not something <laughs> that you can true. sell as progress <laughs> over the next 25 years, then, you know. Well, goodbye. and it's not, you, know, you don't so even have to make the bet, okay? If, if your team trades for someone who makes $200 million and it doesn't go well, Bingo. someone's getting fired. Well, well said, well said. That, that's kind of what I meant is like, if there was something that they could have clung onto and like the Blake Griffin honeymoon lasted like 36 hours, you know, he was like so fired up to be in Detroit, like quote unquote fired up according to his social media, you know, very carefully manicured content. Um, and that just fizzled so fast. And I think when you have that kind of a situation where you're trying to build momentum, like you're mentioning, and it just goes nowhere, um, I wasn't surprised to see him go. It did seem like it took too long. though. Yeah. Um, well, it's over now, <laughs> and the Detroit can be can begin the long road back here. <laughs> we'll see how long it takes. Um, but uh, I can't. I, honestly, the season next year can't possibly be as dark as it was this year. Uh, you would think. So, with that, let's move to. Well, that's actually that's actually the Pistons' official motto. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You would think that next year won't be as dark it, as this one. I think they have that right underneath Detroit basketball. And all it has literature. been a rough stretch in Detroit. They are one of the teams. I would not get mad if they held a parade for their first trip back to the playoffs, even though they made it two years ago. It wasn't a real, real playoff team at that point. Um, anyways, one more question here. Colin says, As I listened to the beginning of last Friday's pod, I began to think to myself that Ben could absolutely start his own cult. This thought gradually crystallized over the next podcast and a half, and then it was bound, preserved in amber, and multiplied a million times over by Ben's purpose versus a purpose soliloquy on last week's pod. I'm not saying that he ever would or should, but I think that Ben has all of the qualities necessary to lead his own cult. He has an earnest, uncompromising, and slightly nonconforming worldview, and he steadfastly oh, lives his life according to this view. He has a flair for the dramatic and regularly uses a number of easily quotable catchphrases as if they were commonplace even though virtually no one in mainstream society would have any idea what he's talking about. For example, puberty ball. He can be slightly sanctimonious sometimes to those who don't share his worldview, although not in a way that would put them off from wanting to join his side. Lastly... That part that part's debatable. There's a lot of people who are like, I don't want anything to do with this guy. But continue. Lastly, he is always trying to recruit new members to his vision. And the most important thing that a cult leader can do is recruit new followers. Having just written this out, I am now revising my initial statement. Ben has already started his own cult. I predict that in ten years, Open Floor Globe will have built a city out of adult Legos somewhere in the mountains of Utah where everyone worships Michael Jordan, plays Spurs-style basketball, and eats peanut butter tacos. Um, Wow. I will let you respond to this. I will just say, 
I just finished up watching Wild Wild Country on Netflix, and I will add to his email. Oregon's yeah. finest. <laughs> You've already got the Oregon ties, so you're halfway there, and I wouldn't put it past you to go the full way and start poisoning Russell Westbrook fans or whatever, but beyond hey, there, look, on. we're close. All I'm saying is we're, we're, we're dangerously close. Okay, so a couple of thoughts. First of all, you know, we're we're joking here. Real cults in in society are nothing to make fun of. I mean, there's they have disastrous effects on people's families. So you know, just realize this is all in jest. <laughs> Andrew, <Okay. laughs> I think if if this really open floor globe is a cult, I hate to break it to you, but you're the first convert. You know, you were gushing over Al Horford uh, earlier this podcast. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you send me links to Legos regularly now. I mean, it happens all the time. You've come around on the importance of defense. Yes, it's maybe not as important to offense. You love making that point, but you certainly value defense more than you did. You don't instantly rush for those bucket getters like you used to. I just want to, you know, once you read this email, did you kind of feel like you could identify with him, that you had already been indoctrinated and maybe you knew it or maybe you didn't? I mean, are you in this cult? (laughs) I have so much disdain for so much of what you hold dear that I don't consider huh. myself a cult member, but maybe you're right. I think you've you've now forced me to look inward, and the next seventy two hours between between now and the next podcast could be a little rough. But I I never considered myself a member of the Golliver cult until now. Okay, so Jordan or LeBron? You said Jordan, yeah. right? You, did you buy Legos? Uh, <laughs> did you stand in line in New York City in oh, freezing God. cold weather right. to go buy That's Legos? It. That's it. Yes it's, or no? Look. That, you did. Uh, you've mentioned you want to go visit Utah, and I'd be glad to show you some national parks. I'm sure you'd love it, Andrew. I'm sure it'd be great. Um, look, Colin, I really appreciate this email, but you weren't supposed to tell everyone, man. That's our little <laughs> secret, okay? Guys, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or other cult-like fantasies no. like Colin, email them to openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com right andrew let's attract some new followers don't you think and leave a review or whatever who cares please stop emailing in and encouraging ben's worst instincts that's all (laughs) i ask Uh, but we will be back guys go go to apple Podcasts, search open floor two words easy to spell find our page scroll down it says rate and review go ahead and tap five stars it helps us spread the message without requiring matching sneakers andrew or the infamous Kool-Aid that you were referencing <laughs> earlier. None of that. Uh, Andrew, until next week. All I'll right, talk man, to you. take it easy. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.